Good morning. Glad you are here, uh, clothed and in your right mind. Uh, and I'm sure you're glad I am too. <laughs> now this is the point in the service where I will say, uh, take out your Bibles and turn with me too. Uh, so take out your Bibles or your digital form of it and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're studying the book of Romans. <clears throat> Started uh, first of the year. And we're in chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. You may have an NIV or a King James or a New King James or English Standard Version, various versions out there, so it might be a little different. But follow along, uh, chapter 2 of Romans, verse 17, and Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And you say, you who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through the breaking of your law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor, a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Well, let's pray. Ask the Lord's direction here. Father, thank you for um, having your Holy Spirit move upon the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to pick up a quill and write down these words that are inspired and errant. They're living and powerful. Father, as relevant and as powerful 2,000 years ago as they are now today. Father, we need, however, the, just your clarity. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us, to direct us in truth, to stir us up, to... Cause us, Father, in, in our minds and in our hearts um, um, to, to resonate with, with what is true. We need your power to then take these words and transform us. And so, Father, we right now we express to you our dependency upon you to accomplish your purposes in transforming us this morning, this hour, as we continue our time of worship in your word, Father, um, 
We realize that apart from you, nothing is going to get changed. Nothing going to get accomplished. And so, um, surprise us, each and every one, Father, how you want to direct our thoughts and to transform our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a book that he entitled Screwtape Letters. You've probably read that book, maybe some of you. It's a, it's a, a very creative story where um, an older demon, a fictionalized demon by the name of Screwtape, is writing to his younger demon nephew named Wormwood about how to be an effective um, emissary, ambassador for the devil. Very creative writing. Well, Walter Martin, a number of years later, wrote a sequel to that, Screw Tape Letters Again, or Screw Tape Writes Again. And it's the same thing, the elder screw tape, the old uncle writing to his young nephew, Wormwood, uh, this time about how, how, to, how to bring confusion uh, into the minds of people who are considering Christianity. Uh, this is what the, the elder demon, Screwtape, wrote to his young nephew, Wormwood. If you can obscure the facts, there's a good chance that he will embrace, the he being this person that Wormwood is trying to influence, there's a good chance that he will embrace what hell considers to be the perfect synonym for true religion, churchianity. In this marvelous imitation of the enemy's church, of course the enemy is God, everything looks and sounds right and good, but the enemy's spirit is conspicuously absent. You must arrange to make him um, a devout Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopalian or whatever. Make him that. He must come to accept the church as a type of religious social club where people simply congregate, nothing more. In a word, my dear nephew Wormwood, help him to become more religious, but for hell's sake, not more Christian. <laughs> the power of religion, right? Interesting, when Jesus walked here on earth, is it not that he confronted the religious people more than any other group? I mean, he had, he had battles with the religious elite. Like in Matthew uh, 23, he said to the Pharisees and scribes, Woe to you, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and, I've and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat, you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, clean up the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Wow. That's heading head on, the religious folk. Mark Twain once wrote, having spent considerable time with religious people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax gatherers and sinners. <laughs> now, in the opening verses and chapters here of, uh, of the book of Romans, 
as we've seen, Paul is laying down a foundation um, that is all-encompassing and covers everybody. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, he mentioned that mankind, generally speaking, um, are sinners. Uh, they have a, a way of taking the truth of God, he says, and exchanging it for lies. They have a way of taking God's glory that's revealed in creation, and then they end up worshiping that very same creation. And then he comes in chapter 2, verse 1 through 16, as we saw last week, and he, he, he addresses that moral person, that pious sinner, who, as when Paul is um, chastising mankind in general, the, the general pagan world, they're sitting there and saying, you're right, Paul. You're right. Go preach it, brother. But not realizing that as they point one finger out, they, these moral sinners, have four pointing back at them. And Paul says in chapter 1, you who judge others, don't you do the very same thing? No one is going to escape the, the scrutiny, the righteous judgment of God. But what about the, you know, the squeaky clean religious person? The, the one is seemingly doing everything right, never misses church, never, I mean, you talk about squeaky clean religious. Surely they are not condemned sinners too. And this is the passage that we're looking at today. Because even the squeaky clean religious person is in trouble. Paul, in his day, when you want to talk about squeaky clean religious people, there was one group of people that stood out beyond them all, and that was the, the Jew himself, his own countrymen, the people of Israel. And those are the people he addresses in this passage. And he says some very shocking things about them. Verse 17, he affirms these three things about these people, his people. If you bear the name Jew and bear it with pride, and, and rightly so. The Jew. They were the chosen people of God, right? They were the ones that God had set his affections upon above all other peoples on the face of the earth. It was the Jews that held his heart, the apple of his eye. You bear the name Jew. I am God's chosen. And Deuteronomy says such. You are a holy people to the Lord God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There is no one like Israel. The Jews are in a class all of their own. And he says, second of all, you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law. The word means to, you find rest, you, you, you find comfort in, in the law. And again, rightly so. Of all the people on the face of the earth, it was the Jewish people to whom God had communicated his truth. He didn't go to the Egyptians. He didn't go to the Amorites or the Canaanites or any of the other ites. He went to the Jews. He revealed himself and his heart, his commandments to the Jewish people and to no other. And it was a wonderful blessing. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, verse 7, 
The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And the law was for the Jews. God had given the Jews the law. And then, last part of verse 17, thirdly, they boast in God. And indeed they should. It was to the Jewish people that God had revealed himself. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. The one and only God. No other gods. Monotheism, one and only Jehovah God. And he came to the Jews, to Israel. He showed himself to Israel and Israel alone. Jehovah was their God and they could boast in that. And in fact, God even welcomed that. Jeremiah 29, 23 and 4. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man even boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. For the Jews to boast in God, they were spot on because God was worth boasting about. But... In the following verses, um, Paul is going to expand. He's going to unpack those three things a little bit more. Um, you're a Jew. You have the law. You boast in God. And in a, in, a, in a literary form that's called chiasm, those ideas are unpacked by reverse. Jew, law, God, A, B, C, chiasm. Now he repeats it. Backwards, C-B-A, God, law, Jew. So look at verse 18. And you know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. You not only boast in God, but you boast in a God whose will you have learned. You've come to understand the heart of God. He's revealed it in his word. You have approved the things that are essential because you've been instructed in truth, in his law. You see, the Jew could say above any other group of people, any other group of people on the face of the earth, we have a corner on truth, on the will of God. You want to know about how to live successfully in life? We've got it because we've got the law. God has only communicated that to us. Pick a topic, any topic. The Jews could say, we have a leg up on you because we've got the law. Marriage and family, we got the law. We know it better than anyone. Um, finances, we can't be touched because I, I tell you, we, we understand God's heart of finances more than anyone. We've got God's will. It's written in his book and we've got the book how to just live successfully, how to, how to live in wisdom. We are far and away better than any folk on this earth because God has communicated it to us. We know his will. We can approve the things that are essential. 
instructed out of the law. Thirdly, he says, and we're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind. You're a light to those who are in darkness. You're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, because the law. It's the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Oh, we, we've got this thing down, the Jews could say. You need help? Well, we, we are a light to those who are in darkness. We are a guide to the blind. You need direction on how to live your life? Come. We're the teachers of the infants, of the immature. And indeed, they spoke truth. The Jews were the specially chosen people of God. Out of all the peoples of the face of the world, God chose Israel. They were blessed by being the recipients of God's commandments. They were the one and only people to whom God had revealed his heart. They could indeed boast that God, the one true God, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He was their God, the God of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses put it this way, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land or do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. And so keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and they'll say, Surely this great nation is a wise, is an understanding people. For what great nation has a God so near as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm sending before you today? There is no greater nation blessed on the face of the earth, says Moses, because We've got God. We've got his word. And all the other nations can look and say, wow, what a great nation. What a great God. No, all this is true of these religious folks, these Jews. And it, even though it's all true, something was tragically wrong. Something was tragically amiss. Paul exposes the reality of these religious Jews, the hypocritical reality here in this passage. Paul is kind of doing like a, um, a spiritual sting operation. You see, he's just set them up in verses 17, 18, 19, 20. You're Jews? Wow. <laughs> You've got the law? Good for you. You've got God on your side. You boast in God. In fact, you're, you're a, a, a guide to the blind. You're a light to those in darkness while you're the teachers of the immature. That's the setup. Now comes the takedown. In verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, don't you dishonor God? Well, I mean, we're, well, I mean, we're not that bad. I mean, okay, maybe a little bit, you know. But really, come on now. Cut me some slack. And Paul is exposing the reality of the fraud of religiosity. You see, because Paul knew, the Jews themselves knew, they knew their history. Nobody can keep the law perfectly. You preach it this way, bub, but don't you break it? In fact, don't you dishonor God just like your forefathers did? And he quotes from Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 37 there in verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, what would you say, just a little aside, but what would you say is the ultimate reason for righteous living? Is it not to honor God in a dark world who doesn't know him? To be that salt and light so that people can see what, what God really is like? Paul is saying, you Jewish hypocrites, you've been given all this, and yet Gentiles are blaspheming God because of you. In spite of all the privileges, all the claims of spiritual superiority, Paul is exposing the religious sinners in their hypocrisy. Why well, isn't it true that the most vile pagan, I mean the most wretched unbeliever, they have such um, sensitive spiritual noses. I mean, they can sniff out a hypocrite like nobody's business. An unbeliever once remarked to a, a Christian friend who was trying to tell him about Christianity, and he kind of stopped him in mid-sentence, and he said, look, show me your redeemed life, and then maybe I'll believe in your Redeemer. Howard Hendricks, an old professor of mine, once quipped, the church is in the world all right, but unfortunately there is plenty of world in the church. And the world, they watch, they listen, and so many times they laugh. And religious people give them a lot to laugh about. The failure of religion, he continues there in verse 25, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And he's referring to that that religious rite that was instituted back in Genesis 17 to Abraham as a, um, as a symbol of their chosenness, of their special relationship with the one true God. That physical rite of circumcision, and it labeled them, we are the people of God. Well, verse 26 if the uncircumcised, the pagan, Gentile, he keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded then as circumcision? 
And he who is physically uncircumcised, that, that Gentile pagan, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? He turns the tables on him. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, there's the moral sinner, the righteous person, pointing his one finger while four are pointing back at him. You, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you who judge others, are you not also judged? Are you not also condemned? Because you do the very same thing. And so here the tables have turned. The Gentile is now judging the religious, righteous, pious Jew. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's a Jew, verse 29, who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, his praise is from God. And by the way, there's a little play on words here because the word Jew comes from that, that um, name of one of those tribes, the southern tribe, Judah, Jew, it's from Judah, and the etymology of that Hebrew word, Judah, is literally to praise. You call yourself Jew to be praised. Uh-uh. Maybe men will praise you as they look at your you know, outward conformity, but God doesn't praise you. He sees the heart, and that's what matters. The outward symbols of the Jews, circumcision, I mean, we could put in baptismal certificate, I mean, whatever that outward symbol might be for us today. No, no, that's a false sign of spiritual, eternal security. They thought it was an entrance into heaven. But God is saying here, <laughs> the outward mark means nothing. The outward conformity means nothing if there's no inward reality. And you see, it's the circumcision of the heart, which is done by the Spirit of God. Real life transformation, real life change takes place here inside religiosity won't matter when a person stands before a holy and righteous God. Our rituals, our symbols, our religious rites, God is not impressed with. Our church membership certificates, our baptism certificates, our, our long-running attendance certificates, our service records, our seminary degrees, our ordination degrees certificates, mm-mm, it never impresses God. God looks right past that. He sees the heart. You know, Jesus had a conversation with one of these religious people, Nicodemus. Remember that story in John chapter 3? Spiritual, squeaky clean Nicodemus, religious leader of the Jews. And Jesus tells him, remember, you must be born Again, literally, you must be born from above. You must be born from above, from the Spirit. And Jesus continues and explains to Nicodemus that without that spiritual work, 
without being born from above, without the Spirit of God, like cleansing water, like the wind that blows. He uses those metaphors. It's the Spirit of God that will bring you to life. Are you a teacher of the law, he told Nicodemus, and you don't get this? Because it's all over the book of Isaiah. It's all over Ezekiel. God cares about the heart. goes back to the law. Genesis 17, Abraham, the right of circumcision, that will show that you are the people of God. But then in Deuteronomy, he comes and he says, um, uh, it's got to be more than just physical circumcision. It's got to be of the heart. And that went right over the heads of the people. Let me share with you just a couple of applications that I think are very pertinent to this passage. First of all, go back again to verse 17, to those, that opening verse. And these are all great and wonderful things. But instead of saying Jew, let's just put the term Christian in there, okay? If you bear the name Christian and you rely or you rest upon the Word of God, the Bible, and you boast in God, and you, you know His will, in fact, you approve the things that are essential, that are right. You're instructed by the Word of God. Matt, you stand for, for life. You speak out against abortion. You stand for purity. If you're practicing homosexual, it's wrong. It's, it's perversion. We'll stand and say that. We'll, we'll tell you the sins because we, we kind of know that. We've got the Bible. You're confident that you're, you're a guide to the blind. You're a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, and a teacher of the immature. Man, all these things are wonderful and good. I mean, praise the Lord if, that, if that's how we're identified. We should be. But the question that God would want us to ask this morning is, but is our heart transformed? It's not just the outward form. It is what's the reality. Has the Spirit of God brought you to life? Have you been born from above? Says Paul. Says Jesus. Are people praising you as they see your outward works? Or is God praising you because he sees the reality of your heart? I've pastored for almost four decades now, and believe you me, I've seen a lot of good, sincere, and religious folk like, like Lorraine. What a dear lady Lorraine was in this little church I pastored in rural Nebraska. The church doors opened, Lorraine was there. Missionary Lady Society, front and center. There was no more decent, kind, thoughtful, patient. She was a wonderful mom and wife and grandmother. I mean, you, you would, if you look up the term decent in a dictionary, you'd see her picture there. That was Lorraine. A person needed a meal, she'd be there to give it. Never unkind, never rude. Just a peaceable, sweet, godly lady. But one Monday morning, there was a knock at my office door. And she comes in and sits down. And she said, you know, you said something yesterday. And it has, 
it, it, has, it has knocked me to the floor. I'd simply share it again like I typically do on Sunday mornings, how one gets to heaven. That it's not your goodness that God is impressed with. It's what Jesus did that God is impressed with. I mean, we can't outdo Jesus, and he died on the cross. He paid for our sins. That's our ticket to heaven is faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's not our goodness that impresses God. And I shared that, and here comes sweet, good, righteous, godly Lorraine, well into her 70s, now in my office. And she said, I have come to the conclusion my righteousness is as filthy rags. I have been thinking that all this stuff that I do, all the goodness is, is going to earn me a spot in heaven. And I now realize it's not. And that morning, that Monday morning, that 70-plus-year-old gal trusted Christ as her personal Savior for the first time. You see, all of a sudden, the Spirit transformed her in her heart. Well, as many of you know that um, um, my mother-in-law lives with us, Lisa's mom, Betty, 93 years old with dementia. Betty has been a, a sweet gal all the 43 years that Lisa and I have been married, that I've known her. Um, kind, soft-spoken, would never hurt a flea. Um, and very, very religious. Really, really, she, she was a wonderful Roman Catholic and very dedicated to the church. And over the years, Lisa would many times talk with her, Mom, you know, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you, Betty, into my heaven? What would you say? And time and time, if I had a dollar, every time Betty would answer, well, I've been good, I'd be a wealthy man. Because that was her answer over and over and over again. It just never clicked. She was so good. And then a year ago, right about now, in the thralls of dementia, Lisa, once again, talked to her about Jesus. Mom, your time on this earth is, is, is going to be pretty short here. You're 92 years old. You're sick. Uh, do you know you're going to go to heaven if you're going to go to heaven when you die? And probably expecting the same answer that she'd heard for decades. Lisa was shocked when her mom said, no, no, I don't. <laughs> Maybe the dementia had, you know, was kind of being fuzzy in her mind. Mom, let me ask it again. And she went again and, and asked her mom, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, do you know that you would have entrance into heaven? And her mom said, no, I don't. And so Lisa had the opportunity to show her and tell her again what Jesus had done. He died for your sins because you can never be good enough. He rose again. He wants to offer you a free gift. You don't work for it, Mom. You don't earn it by your good deeds. You get it as a free gift. Do you want that? Yes. Let her to the Lord.
letter in a prayer of, of thanksgiving to the Lord. It, it's like you have to become like a little child, a demented, demented dementia-stricken child until you finally realize it's not about what I do. It's about what God does. A few weeks later, as Easter was approaching, Lisa said something to her mom. Hey, it's Easter. Mom, you know, you know that's my favorite time. You know, you know what it means, that Jesus is alive. And she said, and he's right here. Yeah. You know, it's not a matter how good we are. That's what Paul is trying to tell these religious Jews. It's a matter of the heart, what the Spirit does. Have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? Anybody here who still thinks religiosity, churchianity will win you a spot in eternal glory? It won't. It can't. But something will, and that's faith in Christ and Christ alone. He died for your sins. He paid for them. He rose again. And the only way to heaven is to put your faith in him and him alone. What does it look like? Do you believe what I just said? That's faith. Do you believe? Will you, will you depend on what Christ did for your eternal life? You say, yes, I believe that. And by faith alone, that issue of eternity is settled. But second of all, for those of us who do know Jesus as our Savior, I think we need to, I need to offer this challenge or this caution. Is our external life, as we live it out in this world, matching the internal reality of being born again? Do we pride ourselves that we are called children of God and we know his Bible, his word, and we go to Bible studies and we teach Bible studies and, and we rely on that and we truly are pointing people in darkness to the light, the infant, the immature to proper teaching. We really do have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But is the word hypocrite blazoned on our forehead? What do we show the world? Christian parents, and this is so important, are your children seeing the reality of Christ lived out through your life? Or, or are your words in your home just, do they just ring hollow? Because really what they see is anger and frustration and, and negativity. Christian employers, do the people who work for you, do they just hear some compelling um, religious phrases or jargons or, or conservatively politically correct things or or do they actually see the reality of a transformed life lived out in the context of the workplace? Employees? Do people at work hear merely rhetoric or, or religion? Or do they, they really get a picture of someone who once was lost but has been found, was once blind but now can see? The reality of a changed life. Christian students? What do your friends at school see? 
What do they hear? Do they just hear invitations to come to youth group and hear about Jesus? Or, or do they really see Jesus at school through, through your life? Christian preachers and teachers? Do people just hear the word taught? Or do they see a changed life? Sheldon Van Auken in his book, A Severe Mercy, puts it this way, and it, so poignantly, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. It's their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians, who when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and, and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. What is the world seeing in our life? Is God being honored? Or do people walk away and say, good night, if that's what Christianity is, count me out. The most judgmental, most hypocritical people I know I love the story, the true story of J. Hudson Taylor. He was the great English missionary to China back in the 19th century. Profound impact in that country. And decades later, after communism had taken over, Hudson Taylor's legacy was still profoundly felt in that nation. And so the communist authority, they commissioned a man to write a biography about J. Hudson Taylor that would mess with the truth revise the history a little bit, show this man to be the fraud that they said he was. And so this person began to write this new biography of J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. But the more he, he researched and the more he studied, the more he tried to write the negativity of J. Hudson Taylor, the more he realized the profound, compelling evidence this man walked with God. And that person ended up putting down his pen and trusting Jesus as his Savior. Folks, it's a life well lived. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we were once not a people, but we are the people of God. And so we're to glorify God. We are to proclaim, he says, the excellencies of Christ and then live that out among the Gentiles in such a way that they'll see it. They'll taste the saltiness, the flavor of our life of Jesus. They'll see emanating from our life the light of the world, salt and light, a changed life. Starts right down here in the heart. And folks, that's where the good news comes in. And that's what Paul is writing about in the book of Romans. I can't wait to come to Rome. I want to share the good news story about Jesus. I want to tell you about the righteousness of God because you see, it's the power of God to rescue. It'll rescue people who are on their way to hell. It'll rescue them and, and, and whisk them off to heaven when they depart this world. And it rescues God's people from a life of hypocrisy, from a life of spiritual fraud, 
And Paul will tell us about that. We can't talk to you now. I mean, we got a, I'm over time now. We've got a congregational meeting coming up and a final song. But that's where Romans 6, 7, and 8 is going to take us. And he's going to tell us of how we live that powerful life, how it can actually be manifested in us, that spirit that is within of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control so that the world will see and just maybe they'll come to believe that God you talk about, that you boast in, you've convinced me. Tell me about him. Father, thank you for um, your word, and I pray that you'll help us to um, take to heart what you've written, that we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and not a person who preaches that if you tap us on the shoulder, you whisper in our ear, you say, this is the way, now walk ye in it. Whatever you want, Father, have your way with us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We need you, Lord Jesus. And we want your life to be shown through ours. We have nothing to offer the world but you. Thank you that we have you to offer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.